today I'm going to share with you um, some examples from our glass plate negatives held here in our stores at the Norfolk Heritage Centre. Um, out of the four collections we're talking about a couple of thousand individual slides so today very necessarily this is just going to be a brief introduction to four collections and that will be uh, Mr Alfred Taylor of Starston, the Hoborough collection who were river engineers who worked all over Norfolk, Coleman's of Norwich who need little introduction and Mr Sidney Hubbard of Great Melton. But before I do that, I just want to start with a couple of quick definitions and a little bit of context to the technologies involved in creating these glass plate negatives. First things first, what is a negative? Most people know that, but just to define it, in photography, it's an image where the lightest areas of the subject appear the darkest and the darkest areas appear lightest. It's inverse. So it's a reverse order of how we normally experience the world visually. Another thing to say is that the very first negatives, the very first but successful, reliable negative process, they weren't made of glass, they were paper. And here we have um, a somewhat tired, but um, still here, calotype or paper negative from our own collections made by Mr. Thomas Damon Eaton of Norwich. Um, and these, uh, this process was invented by William Henry Fox Talbot back in 1841. And the use of paper as a negative <coughs> meant that the textures and fibre making up the support, the paper support, can be seen. And the effect of that was to make them slightly grainy, fuzzy prints. But calotypes did represent the first the beginning of the positive negative system of photography that was to see us through right up to the advent of digital. So it's an absolutely pivotal, pivotal moment in the development of photography and the basis until we see digital happening. Um, 1851 saw the introduction <coughs> of the first fully practical process for negatives on glass. Um, this was the wet plate or collodion process and it required considerable manual dexterity. It was quite messy, um, it was quite toxic and it took many steps in order to achieve an image using this. All the preparations and processing had to be carried out on the spot which meant having a complete portable darkroom for most occasions um, and particularly for landscape photography. And the plate in wet plate collodion has to be developed before it dries. Um, but it was a game changer in terms of the detail and sharpness that could be produced with negatives and the prints from them, and the shorter exposure times that it allowed. Um, the collections and negatives we're going to see today, though, which are all post-1880s, are all gelatin silver negatives on glass. And the photographers who used these didn't have to go to the trouble and the mess and the expense of creating their own plates, as in the wet collodion process, because by this time, um, there's this dry negative process available, which you purchased, ready to be used. You still needed skill and patience and some experience to produce a good image, but this whole part of the business was a lot quicker and a lot cleaner. So from a modern perspective then, glass negatives are quite tantalising. You can get a glimpse of what they show if you hold them up to a light, but it takes some effort and equipment to actually obtain a positive from them. For this you either have to make a print from it, from the negative, or you could use a camera with backlighting and then invert that digitally, or you need a scanner with a negative capability. All of that takes a bit of time and organisation and money. So what normally happens then is that negatives sit around for decades in their dusty wooden boxes. Nobody does anything about it. And often you've got a badly scrawled list of plates in the box lid, if you're lucky. I won't say that this one's badly scrawled, though this is rather beautiful. Um, one of Sidney Hubbard's uh, box lids. You can read every word. So thank you, Sydney, for that. But that is rare. 
Um, and of course, normally, all the negatives in the box are mixed up, so you've got a bit of a detective puzzle going on. So the images, though, remain out of our reach, often for decade after decade. But one of the things about them is that they're glass, and that is often um, a factor in their survival. Um, this elusive quality, this air of mystery, um, may be the reason that some people attach an import a greater importance or significance to glass plate negatives than they sometimes warrant. Um, often you can have a really high expectation when you're digitising them. Um, it's got that big reveal element. You're thinking, yes, I'm going to be the first person in a hundred years who gets up to see this image properly. What amazing revelations am I going to see? Um, and it's also amazing to us that these fragile portals from the past have even survived. But we have to remember that however intriguing and alien these items are to us now, they just represent the technology of their time. And like any other form of photography, they were also used to capture the mundane and the unremarkable. Even the passage of time doesn't always render them interesting to us today. And another thing that is revealed once you take a print, once you digitise a negative, is the um, level of skill of the photographer. And I have to say, very often that can be disappointing too. Um, but so it pays not to get overexcited about um, when you approach the digitisation of glass. But it is a really rewarding activity because you do have that privilege of unveiling, <coughs> revealing detail and stepping back in time for a moment. Um, sometimes the reward is just an interesting face or interesting clothing or the unusual depiction of an activity. And sometimes the significance isn't apparent until you've compared it with other images. And a final thing, to, general thing to note about negatives is that in recent years there's been a really strong revival of interest in alternatives to <coughs> digital photography, with many photographers exploring historical methods for making images. And this has included an interest in glass negatives. Um, people again making their own plates and dry plates are once again commercially available. Our lovely photographic volunteer at the Heritage Centre, Kate Bryan, who has been working on these collections for some time, came to us with a particular interest in negatives, mainly from her own 35mm work. But this trend now that we see in analogue photography is something that appeals to a younger generation of image makers who were brought up on digital, but now the attraction is that this way of doing it isn't instantaneous, the process and the physical element is also part of the fascination for them. So, let's have a look today at the first of our photographers, Mr Alfred Taylor. He lived in Starston, near Harston, a place with which his family have been associated for over 200 years. Um, the collection consists of over 800 glass negative plates in quarter and half plate formats, um, and they were all taken by Alfred between the late 1880s and the start of the First World War. Mr Taylor was an amateur photographer but, and he took his images for his own personal consumption. But it really wasn't a short-lived fad for him. He clearly did some experimentation and took the trouble to achieve some excellent quality images. Ultimately, he's handed down to us a really good contemporary life of his, his life and the estate that he lived in. The subjects include his home, family, friends, neighbours and employees and extends out to the wider local landscape of his farm and tenants. He also imaged cottages, churches and villages, lowest off fishing boats and holidays further afield. Let's start with his own residences. This is Starston Place, um, which was purchased by the Taylor family in the 1820s. It's been through several guises um, and the original house was demolished just after the Second World War and a smaller house was built but kept the name of Starston Place. And Conifer Hill was another home which Alfred actually had built himself in 1882. Now put here thought to be as it fits the description of a Queen Anne style house um, from contemporary directories. But I will just say at this point, um, when you're digitising collections, you don't have time for a lot of in-depth research. 
Um, my job is to preserve the originals, make them accessible and find enough good information to catalogue them in a meaningful way. Um, and it's really for our lovely customers to take that research further. But if it doesn't say on the negative or in the box lid, this is Colifer Hill, I'm a bit cautious about it. So um, I try not to make too many assumptions. Um, now. So most of this archive is um, dedicated to portraits of people in Alfred's immediate circle and particularly those of his children. So we'll just take a moment to look through a few examples of these. He married Anna Enfield Dowson in 1881 and they had at least six children together. Arthur, Lewis, Alfred, Ronald and Evelyn and Harold. So um, five boys and a girl. Um, and that's uh, Mrs. Taylor with the hat there. Um, and I'll just show you a few examples because it does make up a really large part of the archive, understandably. Um, and, uh, it's a splendid baby's outfit, isn't it? Yes, yeah. And he's obviously taken a great deal of pride um, in getting because an awful lot of dressing up went in the house. There's people in there keep thinking, oh, that's Queen Elizabeth and Duke of Wellington. So there's all sorts of folks appear. The children had a good time. Um, I'm not sure the man with the lampshade is doing it back. I'm not sure what he's supposed to be. But anyway, they, they obviously had a great time with that. Um, lovely toys, a goat cart, and a beautiful rocking horse there. And there's Evelyn on her tricycle in the garden. I'm not sure what this occasion is, but um, they're fresh flowers. They've been garlanded up with. And here, I do get the feeling that fathers drag them out onto the porch again to take advantage of the natural daylight and pose for a photo. The family are just about tolerating it here, I think. But it is, it is a nice result, though. It's a nice, nice photograph. So we're getting a picture of home life for Alfred. He was a wealthy gentleman farmer, large family, enjoying quite a privileged life at the centre of the estate there. Little snapshots from the census returns tell us that in 1881 he's listed as a farmer employing 20 men and three boys. He's living with his new wife and they have three servants. Ten years later, the couple now have four boys and a girl, eight servants and a governess living with them. At different times, Alfred was a magistrate, a church warden and a county councillor. He was a busy man with lots of responsibilities. So a few more family portraits. I think some of the less formal ones, the more successful in a way, you get a real feeling for the different personalities in the household um, and the mood on the day. I think they're just in the games room here. And another informal one outside, mum's at the back on the right, and I think they've got some extended family and friends joining them there. And he's obviously taking a bit of time here to frame the right um, composition for the photograph. He's experimenting with the lighting. And I'm not sure, but I think um, on the left, the lady standing with the book is Evelyn, the young girl. I think that's her later on, but I'm not absolutely sure about that. But that's quite a charming little selection there. And we are lucky that um, the wider household is included in Alfred's hobby. Um, so we do get the servants as well, which is wonderful. Unfortunately, we don't have their names or a precise date. And while servants' names are all recorded in the census, we simply don't know who is who. Um, here's another group, some of the same um, women there. Um, but this time they're in their full dress, they're in their best work bib and tucker there with very intricate lace. Um, been brought outside to freeze for a photograph again. These ladies may have been part of Alfred's household. Um, I've not been able to discover any further information or they may have been uh, domestic staff travelling with a visitor to the home. But that's another beautiful portrait. This lady, again, same problem. She appears to be knitting something in the round there, so she might be making socks or gloves or something. Um, 
I think she's a member of the domestic staff. She might be a um, housekeeper or governess or something along those lines. But I think that's a sympathetic portrait of her. Here we're um, going outside now. Um, this is the outdoor staff, and that begins to give you some idea of the scale of Alfred's estate. Um, he's assembled them all in the stable yard. Here is a different occasion. A lot of the same people you've just seen are there too, but this is um, a more formal, more careful portrait, and it's wonderful because you get a really lovely idea of working class clothing on the estate, people Obviously, they've dressed up for the camera somewhat, but you get really nice details. And if we go in again, you also can see the expression on folks' faces, which is rather lovely. That's one of my favourite in this um, archive. We're still outside and in the stable yard. Here's a groom, or one of the grooms, um, holding a beautiful piece of horse flesh. And the dog is there at the front trying to steal the show. And here, again, we're still in stable yard, recognise the doors, um, two gamekeepers with their ferret. Now I've put on the right um, a close-up. That's actually the sharpest focus bit of the whole negative. And I just put it in to show you that actually that's one of the advantages of glass negatives. You can sometimes, if they've been focused nicely, you can read um, nameplates or maker's marks there isn't one on the gun in that case, but you can see every detail of his leather gaiters. You can see his um, metal uh, toe caps, and you get a really sharp picture of his gun. Um, uh, and here's one of the stars of the show, of this collection. This shows a steam plough and crew in the act of working a field. Um, the engineer John Fowler invented steam ploughing during the 1850s because he was concerned with the cost of manual labour to actually cultivate land. And his method um, used a steam engine at both ends of a field, and between them they drew the plough back and forth by cable or chain. And this double engine method was exported all over the world. And this is a really rare image of the process taking place. I got letters from Germany for this, so that was really nice. Um, there was a lot of people who got quite excited about that one. You can see the men are sitting very low to the ground. It must have been quite a bumpy ride. And they're guiding the plough. You can see the chain going off at the front of them. In the background stands one of the steam engines with a water truck and the horse. And steam ploughing machinery was far too costly for most farmers to purchase themselves. So what happened is they had contractors or a plough team who was usually about four men and a boy who lived and travelled around in a van together and did this kind of work. So we don't know if this is Alfred's um, staff or actually a contractor, which is probably more likely. And that's just, just wanted to show you the morning sun on their faces. So he's, um, Alfred's obviously taken some trouble to capture a really good um, image of people at work here. Starston Place Farm, um, part of Starston Place Estate, was built by Samuel Taylor in the 1840s as a model farm. And model farms were the kind of shop window for all that was newest and best in agricultural practice and technology. And they started to appear in many counties in Britain during the 1840s and 50s because it had become clear that farmers really needed to up their production and efficiency if they were to capitalise on the growing urban markets and feed the cities. So the model farm pro provided the progressive landowner with an opportunity to experiment with different farming methods, with new crops, um, with types of buildings and machinery, and also to demonstrate them to his um, staff and to his fellow landowners. So it's not surprising then that we see um, elements of the farm coming through in this group of negatives with a model farm on at the heart of the estate. And we have some of the livestock, there's Dolly. 
And this is not a brilliant photo because it's not quite shot, but I think it does give us a real feel for this break in the farming day during harvest. It doesn't feel too contrived. Um, it's a nice little glimpse. And if we go in a bit, um, obviously the young lads have moved and everybody's in the act of refreshing themselves here. But I thought that was um, quite special. And likewise, this one, we're just, Alfred's just peeking into the barn during harvest and um, it's all hands on deck. There's three small children buried up to their necks at the front. And if we go in again at, at the back, you can see just how much they're moving. And again, a sense of uh, the labour and the industry going in on, even though they're, they're still there. Alfred also um, recorded a lot of local folks. Um, the only reference we have for this negative is Old Punchard. And I really tried, but there were so many candidates in the area at that time. Punchards were a big family, so um, I wasn't able to narrow it down, but I did want to show you him, because he's rather wonderful in his wax jacket and corduroys, um, being photographed outside the coal shed. This lady, unidentified, but she's doing some household chores in the garden of a cob cottage that's a bit further out. Um, back to Starston again. This is either Mrs Elizabeth Riches, who's the wife of an agricultural labourer, born around 1819, um, who is recorded as being in Upper Middle Road, Starston. Or it might be Elizabeth Riches, born in 1832, the wife of John Riches, the wheelwright. I don't know which one. Um, take your pick, but again, rather a lovely and sympathetic portrait of Elizabeth. And finally for Alf, oh, just this lady, um, sorry, there's lots of question marks. She's another one, but um, you can very much enjoy her face and her clothes and this portrait. And finally for Alfred, quite unusual um, to see such a well-constructed image of a traveller or gypsy group mm -hmm. in the lanes around Starston. And if we go in a little bit further, you can see there are 12 children there and three adults, but only the men. So either the women were advised not to be in the photograph or they were off somewhere working. But it's just the um, adult chaps and the children in the camp that day. Okay, we're going to get our hands dirty for the next collection, which is, um, I want to show you some wonderful images from the Hobra collection, which is part of a large archive of negatives and prints belonging to the Museum of Bridewell, at the Bridewell. Um, essentially, this group was put together as a record of the work and a marketing tool for this company, and they worked on river engineering projects all over Norfolk. Um, I apologise now, um, the eagle-eyed amongst you will note that I have in some cases used the prints rather than the negatives. It's such a large archive so I used the nearest to hand in some cases. Now Hobra were the people that you called if you needed some really serious landscaping or salvage carried out. Things like having a river course altered, the navigation maintained, a lock repaired, a lake bed dredged or a boat recovered after it had sunk. They were um, experts in pile driving and foundation work. They had a large hand in Cantley Sugar Beet Factory. Um, and they also did loiterage work. They moved clay, salvage and um, household refuse. They're really handy folks all round. Um, this family business actually had its origins in 1831 when Henry Crossgill Cobra undertook some digging work at Alton Lock. Um, alongside his regular job of running a pub at Haddiscoe and also being the station master at Haddiscoe. Um, his son James, who was born in 1839, carried on this type of river contract work and like his father, James also had a pub, the Bridge Inn at Norwich, and this pub remained the headquarters of the contracting firm right up until the 1920s. They paid the wages from there and they did all the administration from the pub. But their little boatyard near the pub at Bishop's Bridge became too restrictive 
and in the 1890s, the firm expanded and built themselves a dockyard at Salt St Andrew on the Yare, and most of their work was actually for the River Yare commissioners. Um, third generation in the business is James Samuel Hoborough here, born 1862, and he took up photography in 1893 and began to document the work of the firm. Um, producing several hundred prints and negatives which survive today and show the amazing extent of the projects they were involved in. He seemed to stop doing photography around 1920 um, and other professional photographers were employed by the firm including Swain family members. But he remained the head of the firm till 1940. By 1888 the firm had become Hober and Son on the marriage of James Samuel who we've just met and they were by now advertising their use of steam dredges and winches. Hobra had some highly individual and fearsome looking machines with which they developed and patented in some cases. This is the Grab One or the Hobra Patent Depositor of 1894. Um, this allowed people to work far out into a river system and at the same time to deposit the excavated mud much further over um, into the fields. So it avoided destabilising riverbanks. Um, it was actually built upon the hull of one of the last surviving Norfolk keel boats, which was kind of pre-wherry, I understand. And, they, um, and it included a swivelling rail track that went along, along the top there, which moved the mud without too much manpower being involved. Um, the man standing on the deck there is James Hobra Senior and he appears in very many of these images. He was a presence in this firm right up until he died. Um, here he is much later in life. Um, he's described in a contemporary newspaper report of the 1890s as a man of great stature, weighing 21 stone and of huge strength, who is known to have lifted and carried a quarter of a tonne pile bell on his own. Well done, Samuel. And here we are, grab one at work, cutting a channel at Hoverton later on in life. And meet Russell. Absolutely fearsome piece of machinery used for dredging. This is the zenith of their um, tools for dredging. They had very many that started as ha hand tools, they had ladder dredgers, they had a bag and spoon dredger. Um, but this was their sort of ultimate machine which they brought from another contracting firm in the 1920s. Looks very impressive. And here it is, just coming under New Carrow Bridge in 1925. And it's named Russell after Russell Coleman because he was one of the year um, commissioners on the board. So Grab 2, in trouble, it's had to be... Um, pulled up and excavated after it was sunk in 1824 and they grabbed three with a broken jib at the brewery Stewart and Patterson's um, factory meadow in Norwich. They called it the meadow, it's a bit out the back, a bit of grass there. Um, and here we have the sucker, I think it did what it said on the tin, moved a lot of mud for Hobra. Um, Demastered wherries, as you can see here, much used by the firm for all sorts of operations. They used it for carting clay and other materials. And when these wherries became too leaky to be used, um, they often sank them and used them to shore up broads and river navigations um, to keep the navigation open. Here you can see the terrible, with its steam funnel, pulling a string of wherries um, laden up with domestic refuse that went from Fishergate in Norwich out to Kirby Beedon, where a steam crane lifted um, all the rubbish onto a narrow gauge railway for distribution across the marshes. And you can see here are the sturdy folk of Hobra creating an enormous pile with, um, of domestic refuse from, that's been taken from Norwich. And here's the infrastructure that they built in order to deal with this, the, the refuse contract out at Kirby Beedon. Some serious work going on there. Here's a, a load being lifted off the river and moved on to the new um, railway system that they built for it, short railway system. And here 
you can see it's a little bit indistinct, but um, the, the lighter area behind the dark tree in the middle, that's all refuse that's been redistributed and brought out of Norwich by Hobra under this contract. And that's all their infrastructure at the front there. So this was a really big contract for Hobra in the 1890s. These gas holders survived, as I'm sure you're all aware, until fairly recently. Hobridge did the lighterage work for this. They moved all the soil out as it was dug, um, and they also did foundation work and pile driving for this project. I'll just show you a few more there. I don't think they were um, involved in creating all the shuttering or the uprights, but they obviously wanted to record it because it was a big project for them. And here, just going in a little bit closer, you can see the terraces going downhill at the back and the offices of the gas works a bit clearer there. And some men, just considering the scale of the problem. And there you can see some folks working on riveting and upright. We'll just go in a bit. Um, so that was, as you can see, that's quite a job. There's the riveter and the riveter's mate working up there. And then this poor chap who had a lot of work to do. I wonder how many weeks or years he was um, at that, that game. Moving now to Great Ryborough. Here we've got Hobra staff. They've already dammed and diverted the river. And now they're digging all of the mud out by hand and carrying it away in barrows. And this is something called bottom fying, I'm told, um, which was one of their specialisms. Now, I've had all sorts of trouble with this term. Um, I only really found one reference to it, and that's stated in an 1899 Notes and Queries dialect journal, and it says that bottom-fying is a word of constant use in Norfolk, but it doesn't go on to say what it means. <laughs> now, but the fire element um, often refers to cleaning or cleansing, so essentially, I'm sure it does mean cleaning out and making good the mill basin, the bottom of the lake, or whatever they're working on. I um, wanted to show you a couple of images relating to their very messy clay contract work. You can see how that might get you down doing that eight or nine day hours a day. Here they're taking it off the river and they're having to dry it a little and process it on the bank before the next stage. And the poor old horse up to his fetlocks, fetlocks in mud. Us the folks down at the back there, I'm sure. But someone has found time to put the advertising sign out in case anyone wants to do that. But that's, that's rather a splendid image. Um, another big contract for Hobra when Nor was Norwich's sewerage system, which was overhauled in the 1890s. And this involved um, employing some divers. Um, it's reputed that James Hobra Sr. also went down at the end of the work to make sure that the pipes had been laid to his satisfaction. Um, but I haven't got any photos of that, unfortunately. <coughs> Here, though, is one of the contracted divers in his weighted boots. Um, he's at Acle Bridge there, so they obviously had to use them from time to time. The 1912 floods brought a lot of work in for Hobra. There were 50 bridges um, in Norfolk damaged. Um, and so there was a lot of reconstruction and new construction going on around the river systems. Um, they were instrumental at Trous. Here at Higham, they're putting in some concrete piles. You can see they're right on the edge of town. There's the allotments on the um, left and the terraces going up the house, up the hill on the right. Here, involved in Whitefires Bridge construction, there's just all the shuttering going up there, none of the hardware yet, so that's, they're in at the early stages of the new bridge construction. This um, is just a couple of random images that took my eye. I don't know whether this is um, anything to do directly with Hobra or whether they, this photographer just liked this, but this is the Zephyr Wherry sitting on the back river at Norwich a nice calm image of a wherry and I thought this one we're back to grab one again 
um, but it does give you some idea of what it was like on a daily basis for Hobra. They were working in really remote areas. It was cold, there was no one around, there were no resources. So that would have been a typical working day and I think that sums it up quite well. Here they are at Cantley and perhaps other teams of workers there as well because there's an awful lot of men there. Um, as I mentioned, they did the pile driving and a lot of the foundation work. They also, up the road from here, were involved in a massive um, project for a new pet food um, factory, but that sunk within um, a month of being built. Um, I don't think that was Hover's fault, I think they perhaps cited it incorrectly, but um, that was one of their mainstays, was doing foundation work. Um, if anyone can help me with hand dialing or diddling, can you see me after, please? Um, again, he's you know he's obviously removing uh, mud and gunk from somewhere. Uh, if that's the dialer he's holding, it's got a jolly long reach. But it's obviously is it a dialer? Thank you. Right, I'll try try and remember that. Is, is it for a channel? Yeah. Just scooping out the mud at the bottom of the dike there. Okay, it just seems very um, imprecise, but um, I'm sure in the right hands, yeah. Yeah, okay. I never saw anyone do it, but I right. don't know of it. Yeah. yeah, oh, thank you, yeah. Um, what else have we got? Oh, um, First World War, there was a labour shortage, of course, um, and so German prisoners of war were extensively used um, to fill in this problem. Um, here they're hand dredging and clearing the Waveney River, and they did that under Hobra's supervision. So they worked alongside prisoners as war for um, two or three years at one period. And the archive is very rich on these photographs, but I've just popped one in today because we don't have time. And I wanted to finish off Hobra today by just looking at a few staff groups and my favorite member of staff. And there he is um, on the right. No, I don't know his name. He's rather wonderful. He always catches my eye. Here he is, <laughs> looking at the camera again. Um, obviously challenging conditions. They're working in and on the ice up at Brazen. So um, a little bit parky. And I've just gone in a bit further so you can see him. He was obviously someone of importance within the firm. He was trusted. Um, you know, foreman or something. He's always at the front of the images if he's around, and he's got a wonderful moleskin um, waistcoat. So I don't know what his name is, but yeah, he's my favourite. And a few um, of the boat rights, the people keeping those fearsome machines in order and creating them in the first place from old wherries and anything that came to hand and creating their own um, tools were the boat rights at Thought Dock. I don't know what the policeman's doing there. And a bit of a later staff group, they to me look like they haven't actually been to work yet. That's, that's before they go, I think. But they're quite, they seem very happy. And we're gonna leave Hobra having some lunch in the fields in the middle of nowhere. They've built a fire. He's got a rush bag and a flask there and I think he's carving away at a loaf. So um, we'll leave Hobra there for now. And the next up is um, another large collection of the glass negatives um, associated with the firm of Coleman's. Now when Coleman's finished production in Norwich, Unilever, Unilever, the new company owner, moved most of these images around production and product history up to their Port Sunlight archive. Um, generously though, they allowed Norfolk Library Service to acquire this section of the archive because it related so strongly to individuals and local families who made up the workforce at Coleman's. Um, the company was founded in 1814 by the flour miller Jeremiah Coleman, who brought a mill at Stoke Holy Cross, and he started milling mustard as well as flour and starch there. He had no children, and he took his nephew James into the partnership to form J&J Coleman and a gradual expansion of the company began to take place. There were about 30 employees in the 1830s, and it expanded to 200 people by the 1850s. And it was at this period that Jeremiah James Coleman, the younger, became head of the firm because the founders had died. 
He oversaw the building of the first mill at Carrow here in Norwich, and it was from then that the business really began to expand. Jeremiah was a Liberal MP for 24 years in Norwich and a non-conformist in his beliefs. He had really strong philanthropic and religious principles and along with his wife Caroline, who was also like-minded, he began a programme of welfare benefits for Colmore's workers that was really revolutionary for the time. By the 1860s, they'd built a subsidised school close to Carrow Works before elementary education was even compulsory. A few years later, they set up Carrow Works kitchens to provide hot food for the workers before canteens were really thought of. In the 1870s, they employed one of the first industrial nurses in the county, in the country, sorry, um, Philippa Flowerdew. That's her on the extreme right there, a Norfolk record office image. And she assisted the company doctor and visited sick employees at home. So in the 19th century, then, we're really seeing the strong beginnings of this cradle-to-grave social protection that Coleman's provided and encouraged for their workers. This included nurseries, housing, pension provision, and we're talking decades before the welfare state came into being and before the trade union really made its presence felt. The majority of the negatives, but not all of them, were intended to be published in the firm's quarterly staff publication, Carrow Works magazine, and this first appeared in 1907. Um, so for this collection, we're firmly into the 20th century. The ethos of the publication was to entertain an interest, but it also aspired to elevate and instruct people. The magazine's themes were wide and it dealt with philanthropic and moral and religious matters, but it also covered an awful lot of other ground, including hobbies, entertainment, welfare and practical information. It reported on local and national events and it also held competitions. And by the time this first magazines appeared, Coleman's was approaching its centenary and it was the most successful firm in the city employing several thousand people. And by this stage, the firm had really become to be regarded by many as more of a community rather than just an, a place to work. It had its own shared <coughs> benefits and its own shared values. The in-house magazine, of course, wanted to bolster this sense of community and the pride and shared responsibility within its workforce. So, um, and if you look at some of them and you were being cynical, um, they, they have a slight air of propaganda for the brand of Coleman's, but it's really unarguable that the firm delivered solid and meaningful benefits to the workers and their families at a time when they simply weren't required to. Um, the Carrow School, as I mentioned, opened in 1857, and that was subsidised so that children could attend at the cost of a penny a week. And it was so successful that they soon needed new buildings, which the company also paid for. This is actually the infant's class at a different location. The children here, I don't know if you can see it very well, but they've got little sand trays on their knees. They're learning to read and write by spelling in the sand. Um, this is often some, um, some sort of open day or important occasion because they have a group of spectators lined along the back there. Here we have a nice relaxed group, some older girls who have obviously started work at the factory, but they're taking a break um, in their working day and um, having to go on the swing in the factory yard. The Carrow Works magazine carried details of the company's social scheme, which was a formal programme of events covering every day of the week right throughout the year. And it was often based at Carrow House, Carrow Clubhouse, or in its grounds. So they had concerts, lectures and drama performances. A huge array of musical and sporting activities took place. There were two cricket teams and Coleman's even acquired Lakenham Cricket Ground in 1878. So here's um, the women on a gymnastic display. And then the men and the boys doing their best for the camera. Nice, solid-looking hockey team. 
This one's a little bit of a more informal sporting portrait, and one of my favourites. Um, a group of women at netball, netball on their work break, in their work clothes, and even though they would have had to a little bit hold those poses for the camera, I still think it's a really beautiful natural um, image of women playing sport at this early date. So I love that one. We have string band, there was an orchestra, there was a brass band. Um, so anybody with any musical um, bent, put it to good use at Coleman's. I mentioned that the hot meal service was offered to workers, and this was really Caroline Coleman's initiative. Um, they charged only the cost of the ingredients um, and provided hot meat, vegetable stew, and a pint of coffee for four pence in the first um, decade of uh, it being set up. Here, I suppose, this is their shop window, their advertising booth at Caro. They've got the menus for the day out, and they've also got samples of meat and cheese in there to tempt you in. Uh, Caro Works Kitchen evolved into a space um, with all the requisite appliances for successful cookery, it says, um, and a place where women and girls could also learn domestic crafts. Here we've got some of the cooks making enormous plates of food for, to feed the workers. Please don't send me a postcard. I'm not sure whether these are Norfolk dumplings. They certainly look like dumplings. Um, there's a few heads nodding, so um, yeah, I'd be glad to have that affirmed. But anyway, I love that portrait. It's like a, a mother displaying her young almost there. Female staff also encouraged to join sewing and cutting classes. This lovely, serene scene of industry would have taken place in one of their lunch hours to take advantage of the light. The staff were allowed to buy fabric at cost price when they made items here as well, which would have been a huge benefit to a lot of families. And I don't know if some of these garments here um, that the women are wearing are handmade, but I imagine they are, some of them look to be. Um, sewing classes were given, but also handiwork and garment competitions were annual events at Coleman's. Um, this group here actually are women who are about to take part in the firm's Canadian scheme, which was an emigration initiative developed because um, just before the First World War, Coleman's weren't able to employ everyone who had come of age within the workforce because there was, it was a period of high unemployment and they simply didn't have the capacity to employ everybody. And they developed this scheme um, whereby several parties of young people, girls and boys but not together, were sent off to live permanently in Canada and Australia. And here's the wider group. They're just about to take this enormous step in their lives. Um, they were trained in housekeeping and cookery before they left, but I'm not sure if the male group was <laughs> or not. They're looking quite happy and jolly. Not everyone here, though, ended up going because some of the parents strongly disagreed and they didn't give their consent to some of the boys going because the boys were allowed to leave at a certain earlier stage than the female parties. So, um, yeah, not everybody ended up going. Here's some more industry taking place. Um, some of the girls are crocheting, knitting and reading out in the garden of the girls' home. It's another um, uh, initiative of Coleman's that they had for single women workers who were employed by them. Um, by now, Coleman's has initiated a savings bank also, a clothing club, a sick club, and even a coal club. There was a lending library, there were reading rooms, there were playgrounds for children, and there was even an athletics club for older members of staff. A couple of events that was covered by the magazine. Here workers are reading about the Coronation Day events that are going to take place locally for King George and Queen Mary. As I'm sure you can tell from the quality of some of these images, they did employ some very good amateur and professional photographers to illustrate the magazine. Um, it had quite high production values right from the beginning um, and it always had a photographic editor who was also usually a good photographer, as well as a general editor for the magazine. 
Ernest Barrett, I think he might be something to do with Barrett and co photographers, was the first photo editor, um, but he unfortunately died in 1911 and he was succeeded by a whole succession of other photographic editors. This was no doubt partly due to the demands of the war, which was making itself felt uh, um, across society by this time. But um, photographic editors for the magazine provided an excellent camera. They had a dark room at Caro, um, and they were free to obtain and commission other images from other photographers as well. And this did include the work of some um, women photographers, uh, which this sort of generally progressive attitude um, was fairly typical of Coleman's. Uh, some women had occupied positions of authority from quite early on, um, such as Eva Barber, who was the respected forewoman of the Blue Department from 1890, sorry, from 1904. Another huge event locally, of course, were the floods of 1912. There was a torrential downpour over two days, which left parts of Norwich very deep in water. The city was isolated as far as road, rail and telephone services. Sewers had burst and all light, power and water supplies to the houses were lost. And as I said earlier, 50 bridges were damaged. So just wanted to show you a couple images of the floods. The quality here is not very good, but I really think it gives you some idea of the extent and devastation of the floods. I think this was taken from Caro factory roof. Uh, in the foreground, it's a little bit indistinct, but you can see a horse and cart ploughing through the water and the material behind it is all material that's been taken out and salvaged from the buildings there. And you can see all the floods and the roadway completely <coughs> underwater. Staying on the theme of disasters, we've got a couple of images post-fires that were reported in the magazine. Um, Coleman's, of course, had their very own fire brigade, which was um, created in 1881 when they had a fire in the factory. The company really did seem to want to be self-reliant in as many areas as possible. On the manufacturing side, they had a tin box department, a wooden box department. They had their own paper mill for making wrappings for the products. And this sort of can-do attitude carries over onto the social organisation of the Caro community too. The Coleman family really encouraged their employees to help themselves by participating in schemes and clubs and indeed there was even a health self, self-help society formed um, in 1907. There's another one there of the cock-in. I've seen many images over the years of this. Um, seemed to almost raise it to the ground. It was a big event locally. Um, the first decade of the 20th century, Coleman's is already exporting all over the world, and it was a brand gaining international recognition, which is perfectly illustrated here. The boxes in the export department are marked for Brooklyn, Hong Kong, Honolulu, Constantinople, and Bombay. So we're not just talking about a little local mustard firm here. This is an unusual one of Robert Falcon Scott, the Antarctic explorer. He's the one in the cap next to the funnel there. Um, the caption on the negative reads, written in ink on the negative, reads, Captain Scott on the Norfolk Broads, Whitsuntide at Corton, 1901. And Corton was the home of Jeremiah and Caroline. Um, they had a grand house there called The Cliff. Um, so it seems very likely that at that time they were entertaining Robert Falcon Scott at their rural residence. And later on, this association is kept up. Coleman supplied commercial sponsorship in the form of mustard, flour and other supplies to Scott's final and fatal expedition, um, polar expedition in 1911. They also supplied Captain Ernest Shackleton, um, the, the Antarctic expedition, in 1907. As I mentioned earlier, right from the start a dispensary was opened within the firm and an industrial nurse employed alongside the Caro do doctor. So employee healthcare was a big interest for Coleman's. This is a really intriguing image which is beautifully lit of an employee being brought home in one of the firm's horse cabs from the factory 
after having an accident at work. And although this is, has a slightly posed air, I think the message here is very caring and the right tone for the staff magazine, for the in-house magazine. Again, we've got um, a young lady receiving a nurse's attention at the dispensary on the left. And on the right is another nurse, and she's actually the resident nurse at the Dell, and which were purpose-built almshouses provided for Coleman's pensioners. There were two dozen of these, they're built around a square with lovely gardens in a dell of trees which screen them around the back and they house retired widows or married couples. Not everyone looks all that impressed with them or they might just not have liked having their photograph taken there. But I like those three ladies. Um, and finally, the Carrow Works, Works Pension Fund was started in 1899 as a memorial to J.J. Coleman when he died. Um, unfortunately, the progressive attitude founded a bit here, though, because it was only open to the men, not to the women or part-time staff. Um, the scheme provided men over 60 from the firm with a pension of eight shillings a week to live on. And here are some of the happy recipients of that benefit. Um, and under this um, will of Jeremiah, the Coleman's Employees Trust was all set up, and that helped people with the cost of operations, nursing and surgical appliances. Although there is a 1918 letter which categorically states that only the first trust will be paid for by the firm and they will not pay for elastic stockings for varicose veins. So there was a limit to their philanthropy. However, when your time came, you did get an allowance for a shroud and for a coffin and it was entered, entered into the Coleman's Coffin Lord. So there we are, we'll take our leave of Coleman's with the pensioners here having their tea of ham salad, fresh strawberries and cake. And I'm, I've been in to check that, so you can rely on that information. So our final collection today is that of the work of Mr Sidney Hubbard of Great Melton near Wyndham. And everything that I know about this man comes in a four-page type document from 2003 made by a chap called Mr Percy Garrard of Little Melton who knew uh, Sydney. Mr Garrard was a photographer himself amongst other things, a cabinet maker and a local historian um, and he donated a portion of these glass plate negatives to us. I've never found anything else about Sydney in terms of his um, work as a photographer. And it appears that he only operated as a professional photographer for just four years between 1910 and the outbreak of the First World War. In 1910, Sydney had just completed a um, course in bricklaying, but he wasn't able to find work for that. Um, and it's not known why he decided then to be a photographer or how he learnt the process. But it is known that he went to AE Co's in Norwich and he brought himself a camera about this time, which is a simple ma mahogany camera with a lens cap and no shutter. And here's an example, one of the envelopes in which he dispatched his photographs out to his customers. Sydney worked from his <coughs> cottage in Great Melton um, and all the process was done there. He didn't have any running water, so he must have been backwards and forwards to the well or wherever he got his um, water from quite a lot to do his processing. Born in 1885, um, he had an older sister Alice and his father William hailed from Coxthorpe. He was a rate collector but by 1911 William's living uh, is recorded as living off private means so um, obviously weren't um, hard up. Sydney married Daisy Parfit, the daughter of a local estate gamekeeper and she became a teacher at Great Melton School. And during the First World War, Sydney went off and he was a cook in the army. Um, and when he got back, he went off to Coe's again to look at their new cameras, but he decided they were far too complicated. They all had shutter mechanisms and things that he didn't, wasn't familiar with, and he did never touch photography again. Um, he did various jobs over the years, including bricklaying and woodwork. 
He was really well known in the area and he also served as a parish clerk and a district, district councillor. In this fairly short time he practised photography, he didn't really define his, refine his technique greatly. He always used the great outdoors as his studio. Um, he provided us though with a really interesting set of lively images of village life around Wyndham, Barford, Marlingford and the Meltons, just for this little brief period before the First World War. This is an interesting group which caught my eye for their rarity value and they show um, gospel camp meetings um, held on commons, just outside villages usually, part of the primitive Methodist movement. And these gospel camps started in Britain around 1804, so this wasn't a new phenomenon when he took these, but you don't find many images of the camps taking place. So these certainly took my eye. Sydney was a great one in, for signing everything, so usually you know where you are with him because he's scratched it into the negative. Here's the wonderful van from the Evangelisation Wagon. Um, it says on there in small letters that it comes from Chelmsford, so I don't know if that was head of a movement or anything like that. I don't know the backstory there. And another one says on the front with the clock, Gospel service here, 7.30, all welcome. Here we're staying with the religious theme. We've got the great Mike Melton Bible class. William Fox is the one with the um, toothbrush moustache on the left there. And they're having fruit cake and tea. This is a rather lovely image. Um, he's ventured inside for a photograph to make a change. And it shows the reading room. Which, um, and these were provided um, as a public space for the reading of books and newspapers in villages and rural areas. Um, there are about 160 of them across Norfolk at one time, and they were a common feature in East Anglia um, in late Victorian times. Uh, they were often imposed on the working classes by the landowners or the church, and they were seen as a better alternative to the pub. Um, most of them had strict regulations which governed their use, and of course alcohol was rarely permitted. Um, but they're not doc well documented at all. You don't see many images of them, and you certainly don't see many images of them in use. So this is lovely. And another thing I like about this image, if you look down to the left there, I'm fairly sure, although I've only got one portrait to um, compare it with, that because he needs a nice long exposure, they're in a dark room, so he takes the lens cap off, he gathers quite a lot of light in order to get enough light to it to make the um, exposure, and he dodges around the front himself, and I think that is um, Mr Hubbard there stroking his moustache in the corner. So that, that's a lovely image, even though it's not of the best quality. Here we have a very cold brass band group in a barn <laughs> but that, I rather like that one and the uh, miller and his mate and they've just had to take some brickwork down to have a new mechanism installed at Marlingford and Sydney's recalled, recorded that. This is subtitled Do You Want To Make Something Of It? Because I don't think they look particularly happy to be photographed but they're very comfortable in their own skins very confident um, and what they're actually doing is chopping up turnips or feed for the sheep which are folded in pens behind them because it's winter that's one of my favourite portraits that's a beauty but I don't know who's who but even the dog looks good in that one Got a couple of express deliveries here this is the baker's cart and here we've got pots, pans, dishes and trays coming round. I wish I could buy mine like that now. <laughs> the good ladies um, picking fruit at Mr Cannell's farm, which was quite a big enterprise uh, near, near the village. And a uh, good day's uh, shooting. They're not cabbages, they're pheasants behind their legs there, as you might expect, but I did have to look carefully. So yeah, that's the pheasant shoot. And there's the village Bobby again, has shown up. I don't know if he took part. 
Um, some of the private portraits, as it were, that were done for clients. I know that lady's called Mrs. Dan, and that's Percy Cousins. Again, taking advantage of the outside light. Here we've got some young members of the Carlers and Cousins family of Great Melton. And finally, a Fox family wedding group in the snow. So everyone's feeling very cold, and I think it's, it's a remarkable portrait, considering. And I, of course, needed to show you the cat there, <laughs> who's doing his best to sit still. But I also wanted to show you the bride in the centre with the flowers there. I think she's feeling the cold, bless her. So, very brief introduction to those four archives. Um, if anybody would like to know anything further, or if you've got any questions, please ask. But that's it for today. Yes. Thank you. Thank you.